All right, here we go. Uh, the message, the sermon. All right. If you've been keeping track, you may know that we are in the second half uh, of the book of Galatians here, a series called Sons and Daughters. And this morning we come to our third and final look at the famous list of what the apostle calls the fruit of the Spirit, things like love and joy and peace and patience and so forth. And so this morning, let's look once more at Galatians 5.22 and then on through Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Tony Campolo, if you've heard the name, is a pastor and a speaker uh, at at a conference I went to many years ago, and he told a story that I've never forgotten. He told the story of a time when he was speaking out in Hawaii, and due to the time difference there, he ended up hanging out, unable to sleep, uh, and and all he can find to get something to eat because he's hungry, only place he can find to go to eat at 3 a.m. is this seedy diner in sort of a rougher part of town. And while he's there, he can't help but overhear a conversation between two women. Now, it turns out these two women are prostitutes, and one of them is named Agnes. And he overhears Agnes saying that the next day is her birthday, and the other prostitute looks at her and asks her, hey, are you going to have a party or something for your birthday? And Agnes looks sad, and she replied, I've never had a birthday party in my life. And the two ladies walk out, and Tony Campolo, he turns to the owner of the diner, sort of another seedy-looking guy, a guy named Harry, and he says, hey, do you know these women? And Harry says, sure, I know them. They're in here every night. I, I know all the folks who come in here late at night. And Tony says to him, let's throw Agnes a birthday party. And Harry says, well, if you want. And so Tony says, okay, I'll go get the decorations and and the cake. Uh, Do you know all of her friends? Do you know her friends? Harry says, sure, I know her friends. And Tony says, great, well, you go invite them then. And the next night at 2.30 a.m., Tony comes back and they begin to decorate the diner and he's got the cake. And about 3.15, all of Agnes's friends begin to come in. And Tony begins to realize that all of Agnes's friends are also prostitutes dressed like she was. And so here he is, again, get the picture, this Christian speaker in a diner full of prostitutes in the middle of the night. And so at 3.30 a.m., Agnes walks in and everyone shouts out, Happy birthday! And Tony's account of the story goes like this. It says, she was utterly, utterly stunned. She couldn't stand up. She just sat down and started crying. And she looked at the cake and she was crying too much to blow out the candles. And so Harry blew out the candles and Harry handed her a knife. And then she looked at the knife and said, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do we really have to cut the cake? Look, I'll be right back. I live right down the block. I don't want to eat the cake. I want to keep the cake. And I just take the cake home. I don't want to eat it. I'll be right back. And so she runs out, and Tony and Harry say, okay, keep the cake, go. And so she leaves with the cake, the birthday girl, right? And so everyone sort of sits around, stunned, wondering what to do next. 
there was this awkward pause. And then Tony spoke up and said, what do you say we all pray for Agnes? He says, so I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation, that her life would be changed, and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over and said, you never told me you were a preacher. (laughs) What kind of a church do you belong to? Tony said, I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry thought a second. Some hostility in his face. He said, no, you don't. There is no church like that. If there were, I would join it. I would join a church like that. Let me just say this as we begin this morning. We are called to be a church like that. We do not believe we're called to be just a group of religious consumers who sort of drive through the parking lot and get a better Christian meal. And they may get at some other church down the street. We're not a, a group of individuals who are basically independent people and then come and sit in an air-conditioned facility uh, just once a week. Or if the statistics are correct, actually, 1.5 times a month for the average American Christian. We're called to be more than average, aren't we? Certainly more than an American consumer. We're called to be a church like that. A multi-generational, multicultural church. So full of God's love and approval and the presence of God on the inside of us, we're able to care more about others than we are about ourselves. And so this passage this morning is going to show us how to be a church like that. And therefore, that's what we're going to look at today, talk about today. We've been looking at what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, and today Paul shows us what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is for. What it's for. The fruit of the Holy Spirit we're going to see is to help us create a kind of church community like that. Like that. The kind of community we all want to be a part of. And so with Tony's illustration and Galatians 5 in mind, let's just ask three questions of the passage and see what answers we get. First... What would keep us? What keeps us from being a church like that? How can we create a church like that? And where does a church like that begin? First, let's ask, what keeps us from being a church like that? Well, again, here in the passage, Paul has uh, marked out the, the characteristics of a supernaturally changed heart. And he says, when God's seed comes in your life, it's going to bear fruit. It's going to look like love and joy and peace and so on. But then Paul does a 180 and he goes right from theology to application. In other words, he tells you what this fruit is. And then he tells you what it's for. So let's see what the fruit of the Spirit is for. And he begins by saying, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And before I go to the next little verse, let me just pause and ask. What do you think a church would look like that was full of people who lived with, who kept in step with the Holy Spirit? What do you think a person's life would look like that was marked by walking in the Holy Spirit? What do you think a family's life would look like, would feel like, that was marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, actually, it might not be what you think. Because according to this passage in the book of Galatians, one of the main ways to see and tell whether or not you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, wait for it, 
is by looking at the quality of relationships you have in your life. And you see actually a relational litmus test in the very next verse. Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. In other words, to know whether you are walking in the Spirit, you should ask, not God, (laughs) but the people around you. Ask your relationships, how much do I taste like God? Or do you even have someone you can ask this of in the first place? One of the most thorough research projects on relationships is called the Alameda County Study. It was headed by a Harvard social scientist. It tracked the lives of more than 7,000 people over a decade. And here is what the study found. It found that the people who were the most isolated were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. And furthermore, people who had bad health habits, who who smoked, uh, who ate poorly, who were obese or abused alcohol or drugs, but had strong social ties, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits, but who were isolated. In other words, it's better to eat Twinkies with your friends (laughs) than vegetables alone. The question is, if relationships are so key to our lives and to our health, so key to what we all want our church to be, then why are they so hard all the time? Now, the way of asking it is, what keeps us from being a church like that? What keeps us from caring about others more than we care about ourselves? Well, the answer can be found in this one actually staggering verse that Paul uses here in verse 26. It's the only time this verse is used in the Bible. Now, our translation, your translation may say conceited. Perhaps your translation says boastful, but that's, that's not quite it. Because a closer rendering is actually this word in the old King James. It's the word vainglory. Vainglory. And that's an interesting word. It's pretty close because the word in the Greek is this. It's the word kenodoxis. Kenodoxis. And it comes from two words. First, keno, meaning empty, and doxa, meaning glory. In other words, Paul is saying the opposite of walking in the Spirit is being full of empty glory. Being full of empty glory. Being full of fake glory. False glory, looking to something else to give the heart weight and meaning and security besides the Spirit of God. And vainglory describes the state of the human heart without God. Now, I'm about to give you a quote from a fabulously successful person. And when, when I read it, you may think it sounds weird, but I, I think she absolutely sounds normal. And the quote is from a singer that you may have heard of, or some lady named Madonna. Here's a quote. She said, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am a somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now you may think, well, that sounds kind of strange, but that's actually not what the Bible says. Paul would hear that, and Paul would probably say, yep, yep, 
sounds about right. That's kenodoxis, empty glory, false glory, and emptiness on the inside. See, a heart that's full of kenodoxis, of empty glory, is a heart that's fundamentally insecure, never knowing who it is. And Paul says, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to your family, when it comes to a local church, there are two ways it shows up. He says, let us not become conceited. He explains it again, vainglorious, here are the two ways, provoking and envying each other. Two main ways. Vainglory wrecks your marriage, wrecks a church. Provoking and envying. The provoke, the first one, comes from a word that means to pick at or to point at or to prove you're better than. And here's what that sounds like in a church or at the office or on a team or maybe in your marriage. It's this. I'm really important. I could do that better than they can. No one asked me why didn't someone ask me how they should have made their decision. It's a good thing I know what I'm doing. Those people need me. That's, see, that's one way. This person's hard again. Forever seeking approval by those they think are important. Maybe they complain or pitch a fit. Uh, they're always, they provoke or they poke at others until they get out of them uh, what they need. Maybe they, you hear this, this community group isn't right. They didn't do the coffee bar here, right? right. Man, no one here notices me. And they, uh, they get loud and they get angry. Poke, provoke, stir the pot, agitate, complain, question everything, point out everything that's wrong. They've got to be right. Prove there's somebody. That's vain glory. And Paul says, that destroys a church. It destroys relationships. But then there's the other side. Not an overestimation of self, but an underestimation. Those who envy. Not someone who says, I could do it better. But someone who says, I could never do it better. My house will never look like hers or theirs. I'll never get the girl like he does or sing this song like she does. And though it looks different, this is still a way of being conceited or prideful or boastful because this person's heart, can you see, their thoughts are still all about who? Themselves. Yeah. Instead of being able to say, that person is really great and good for them, envying says, that person's really great and what does that mean for me? Envying doesn't poke at others, it drains others. It's draining, isn't it, to be around an envious person. And these two things, provoking and envying, are what tear a family apart, tear a marriage apart, tear a church apart. Why? Oh, you know why. Because after a while, when you're in relationship with that person, it just becomes hell on earth. And as a matter of fact, that's actually what C.S. Lewis calls vainglory in his book, The Screw Tape Letters. He calls vainglory a hellish hunger. Hellish hunger. He says the essence of Satan, the essence of hell, is to suck out of a person what you don't have yourself. And that's what provoking on one hand does and envying does on the other. Taking from someone what you don't have in your own heart because of the hunger in your heart. Which is actually why Paul uses the metaphor of hunger earlier in the book. He says if you aren't filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. He says watch out. You'll bite and what? Devour each other. And that's what a business can turn into. You may know this, a team, a church, a marriage, a place where people who are not full of the Spirit of God eat each other up. And you say, man, that's a bit dark. (laughs) Wow, it's kind of still in here. All right. It is a bit dark, but consider the stakes. Consider the stakes, especially for a church, especially for your marriage, for a team, your business. It's life and death. And for the world around us. 
Oh, friends, church, let us not become conceited, vainglorious. Let us not provoke and envy one another. Can you say amen? Instead, let's be a family, a church that loves people so much, loves one another so much, others come to love Jesus. Let's be the kind of church like that that we all want. Now, how can we be that? Second question, let's try to answer that one. How can we be that? If those two things are what keep us from being a church like that, how can we in turn create a church like that. Well, two ways here. There are actually there are more in the passage. You only have time for two. But two ways here from this one verse from Galatians 6.2. Paul goes on and says, Carry, therefore, each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So two ways, bearing another's burden and fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, the word here for burden is actually a singular word in the Greek. It gets translated as plural here in English. It's my opinion, for those of you who are asking such things, that it ought to be, it actually ought to be put as singular. Why? Well, consider what Paul is saying here. He's been talking about what? The universal fundamental problem every human heart has, which is the tendency to use people and things and stuff out of a heart that's hungry for glory. And you know this is your burden. It's my burden. This is everyone's challenge, right? Everyone's burden. This is my burden, your burden, not to use one another. And we, therefore, need help to do that. Paul's speaking to the church and says, carry the burden. Carry the burden for one another of what it just means to be human. And consider, therefore, what the what the burden of the human condition is. It's this. It means that every single person that walks in here, every person that you ever meet is walking around asking internally, do I matter? Am I somebody? Do you care about me? If I blow it, am I a failure? See, every person comes weighed down with that question. Paul says, carry that for one another. Therefore, burden-bearing in this church and in authentic Christian community is all about showing people the answer to that one question over and over and over. Pastor and writer John Ortberg, if you've heard of him, John Ortberg talks about a time he was leading a church service in California where he pastors, and the morning had begun, the service had begun with the high school you know, worship dance team beginning the service, and he said they brought the house down. They were fantastic. And then it was his job right after that to get up and transition uh, the church, the the worship service, into a high-energy song, you know, a big song from the band. And it was his job to do that by reading Psalm 150, which we actually read this morning. And so he said the decision to include Psalm 150 was his last-minute decision. Uh, So he had to get up there and read it cold. Without practice. Yeah, you know what's coming. And so he gets up there, he reads it with great passion. You know, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. And of course, Psalm 150 is one command after another to praise God. And his voice, he said, built and was rising throughout the verses, coming into a shout for the last line. And he read with a volume uh, and a great clarity. The last line is this, let everything that has breasts praise the Lord. Now he said everybody froze. And when he said that, instead of staying, let everything that has 
breath, praise the Lord. He said everyone just sat there frozen thinking, did he just say what I thought I heard him say? Did he really quote the Bible like that? And most importantly, is that some exciting new translation I can get at the bookstore, you know? And then he said everyone in the place just lost it. They, they laughed and they laughed and they laughed and he, he couldn't say anything. And so he just walked off the stage. And the band just started. And he, he finishes the story this way. He said, I've been preaching for years. And we record every single service I've ever done. And the most requested purchased service of all time is that one. He said, everywhere I go, every conference, every workshop I speak at, they show that clip of that moment. That's funny. Now, what's he done? And since he's answered the question, Madonna asks, you ask on the inside, if I fail, if I don't do it just right, if I don't have it all together, am I somebody, right? See, his failure, right, his mistake helped people know they're loved, know they're loved, that they don't have to provoke or envy to be somebody, to be full. He has helped them carry the burden of what it means to be human. And in the same way, when you are vulnerable, when you're vulnerable, when I'm vulnerable with each other, when we're vulnerable with one another, we do the same. Oh, church, let us be vulnerable with one another. Look someone in the eyes today. Tell them it's going to be okay. God loves you. He's for you. You're somebody. Second way we can do this to be and create the kind of church we want is to second fulfill the law of Christ, he says. So, all right, when, when you do this, church, when we do this, when we bear another's burden, when we bear the weight of the human condition, when you help someone out of the despair of vainglory, you are being to them who Jesus has been to you. If you're a Christian, you're helping them hear this, do something they could never do on their own. And if we'll do that... Over and over, we can have a powerfully magnetic church environment. We can be that kind of church, can we? And here's why. Harvard psychologist Daniel Goleman says that on every team and every church and every small group of people, there's what's called this. He called it an emotional economy. I think that's up on the screen. Emotional economy. That means every single time you interact with someone, you aren't just exchanging information or performing tasks, you are also influencing their mood every time. He puts it like this. He sums up his research like this. Emotions in a group are more contagious than the flu. Emotions in a group are more contagious than the flu, which tells us this. Putting affirmation, encouragement, love, joy into another person can change their life, and it can change the dynamic of your home, of your life, of your marriage, of a family, of a team of any kind. See, sharing love changes people. Isn't that what Christ has done for us? Now, last week, a week ago last Monday, my oldest son just finished his baseball season in an incredible way. He made his league's all-star team. Then went to the big Central Texas tournament as the number one seed in their division. During that tournament, uh, we lost the game to the second seed team right behind us. We had to play back to the loser's bracket to get to the championship game where we would have to beat the other team, the team we had lost to, two times in a row. And the first time, the first game, we were behind the whole time, but we came from behind a tie in the last inning. And then won the game spectacularly in extra innings. Pretty amazing. 
to set up the championship game, the final game, the next night. Now, we come back the next night, and the coach of the other team, uh-oh, had been unpleasant to be around. But the depth of his true colors, honestly, is kenodoxus, if I could put it like that. It came out in the last game. He sent his team and parents over before the game early to take the shady side, the shady dugout, which was supposed to be our team's by rule, okay? And he had bullied our parents into moving and leaving. When my wife asked him to respect the rule and move his team, he started jawing at her and told her to shut her mouth. She, she, she was wearing... She was... She was wearing, as you guys may have seen it, her Y'all Need Jesus t-shirt. And one of the other parents turned to her spouse and said, Look, honey, she's the one who needs Jesus. Oh. Now, at that point, everyone's about to blow up. The whole thing's about to go nuclear. You know, it reminds me that, what's that quote from Yogi Berra? Little League sports are a good idea. It keeps parents off the streets. All right. All right. Now, we could have forced them to move by rule, but I, our coaches are around saying, what are we going to do? And I finally managed to do something helpful for the team besides just throw a batting practice. And I said to our group of coaches, I said, listen, stuff just got a way of working out in the end. It's going to be okay. We're going to do unto others as we'd have them do unto us. God sees this. And a man reaps what he sows. So we took the brutal side. The game got off to a bad start for us. We were getting killed. Now the coach started taunting us, doing pelvic thrusts at us after his team hit back-to-back home runs. Yeah. A sister of one of our players over it was on their side overheard him insulting our players so crudely it brought her to tears, literally. And when my son got into pitch later in the game and was holding them, doing a good job, he started to yell at him. To rattle him, he tried stall tactics to run out the clock, including changing pitchers four times in the last inning, having his catcher throw the ball at him in the outfield to waste time between pitches. Even the umpires were eye-rolling the guy and the team. It's tough to swallow, but the whole game, I'm saying, it's okay. A man reaps what he sows. Things have a way of working themselves out in the end. Now, going into the bottom of the last, last inning, here we are, last at bat. We're down 8-3, to three, one out. The kids were pretty down. We had, like, maybe one hit the whole game. We were striking out left and right, and it looked pretty much over. It just did. So I turned to our team, and I said, listen, guys, no matter what happens, win or lose, I'm just proud of you. Just proud of you. You guys have been amazing. So proud to be your coach. You guys have played so hard, practiced so hard, and win or lose, we're going to be good sports and go shake their hands. But you know what, guys? I don't think this is over. I think we can win this. We just need one guy to get on. And do you know what? Man, guy after guy started getting hits. And little by little, the emotional economy of the dugout began to change. We started scoring run after run. That's a point in baseball, for those of you who don't get it. And it came to being down by one run with two outs. We got our bottom guys up. And what do they do? All of our bottom guys start getting hits. Haven't got to hit the whole season. Our, la- our last hitter, our last hitter with, gets a hit with two strikes on him to tie the game. People are going nuts. My son starts crying in the dugout, fall- falls on me. And the next guy gets up and he hits one to the fence to win the game. And our dugout explodes. Parents just are streaming onto the field. The coaches are hugging. We're sharing facial hair, you know. So, you know, da- dads, just dads are crying. This this one this one uh, Mexican mama, this Mexican American player said, "I knew it. I told y'all, si senor. You know, it, you know, I was. I knew it." And she's awesome. And tonight, where uh, our team is going to be paraded around the Dell Diamond before the game to be honored. Yeah. Now. 
That's the power of an emotional economy, right? What did it start with? Oh, just telling a group of kids, we're proud of you. We love you just how you are. It's going to be okay. Now, I know it doesn't always work out like that. Justice doesn't always happen on a little league field. It's just a game. And yet, you know, you know this. When someone comes into your life and affirms you, serves you, encourages you, it changes everything. Everything. We all want that. We want to be a kind of a church like that. So let's ask now, finally, number three, where does that kind of a church begin? I want to take you back to the very first story you heard this morning about Agnes and Pastor Tony. What was Agnes's fundamental problem? What was it? Oh, you heard her when she said she never had a birthday party. She said, I'm lonely, right? You heard her. I'm, she's with men all the time. And yet she's utterly alone on the inside. Now, a few years ago, there was a little children's book that came out called The All Better Book. And the idea of the book was to ask elementary school children to try to solve some of the world's toughest problems, such as how do you, how do you help people stop smoking? How do you fix the ozone layer? But the most interesting question in there, the toughest one was this. Here's the question. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? And here are some answers from some of the kids. First, from, from Kalani, age eight. People should find lonely people and ask their name and address. <laughs> then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. When you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. <laughs> I'd say Kalani's got a bright future in administration ahead of her. I'm going to hire her. Obviously, again, she's got a bright future. Uh, second, Max, age nine. He said, make food that talks to you. When you eat, for instance, it would say, how are you doing? And what happened to you today? <laughs> Probably going to be a science fiction writer. All right. <laughs> Matt, age eight. We could get people a pet or a husband or a wife <laughs> and take them places. But the most touching response, the most heartbreaking one was the last one. He said, it was this from Brian, age eight. Sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. Yeah. What a great question, right? With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What kind of a church can do that, right? Can be a church like that. Where does that kind of system begin, especially in a church? Well, Paul put it like this. He said, since we what? Live by the Spirit. He says, by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, you'll have that kind of a church. That's what he's saying. Theologian Frederick Bruner, in an essay on the Trinity, he began with the person of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinitarian concept of God. And this is what he said about the Trinity. He said, one of the most surprising discoveries in my study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only call the shyness of the Spirit. What I mean here is not the shyness of timidity, but the shyness of deference. The shyness of a concentrated attention on another. It is not the shyness of self-centeredness, but the shyness of an other-centeredness. And this church, this is the shyness of the Spirit. See, the Spirit defers to, points to Jesus, right? But then in the Trinity, when you look at the Son, the person of Jesus to whom the Spirit points, what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't go around saying, look at me. No, he says, if I 
glorify myself. My glory means nothing. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, he said to this, about the Spirit, it's better that I go away, that the Spirit could come. Then there's the Father, twice in the Gospels. It says, His voice was heard from heaven saying, Listen, not to me, but to the Son. He didn't say, After y'all get done listening to the Son, you know, don't forget about me. No, he said, Listen to the Son. Keep on listening. What does this mean? Well, it means, in a sense, the whole Trinity is shy, in a sense. The whole Trinity defers to one another. The picture of God that the Bible gives us is not one of a God who gets his way, but of a God who gives his heart. Can you see? See, to walk in the Spirit is to constantly defer to what Jesus wants. You say, though, if I do that, Morgan, oh, that's the end of my life. And in a sense, it is. It's the end of our attempts, your attempts at vain glory, at either poking at people or draining them to get what you don't have on the inside. And listen, Jesus, he's not asking you to do anything he has never done for you first. Jesus gave up his life, didn't he? He gave up the Trinity, the most perfect and secure, loving relationship of all time, the most perfect source of glory. A home was ripped away from him. And on the cross, he became fundamentally, cosmically alone. He said, not my father, but my God. Not father anymore, but God. Why have you forsaken me? Why am I so alone? Why am I so lonely, God? It was because he was paying the cost for you that your sin demanded so that now you could be brought home into the heart of God and into his body, the church. See, the kind of church we all want begins when we look at the person of Jesus. We see what he's done for us and we say, now, oh, give me that kind of shyness or deference towards others, towards others and towards you, God. And listen, if you'll do that, do you know what this will do? Oh, this will blow out of this place. Any kind of the, I'm not getting my music played here. <laughs> they don't have this or that for me. This will blow out of, they didn't pick me for that. This gets rid of, a, she didn't invite me to their party or their get together. You can be so full of the affection of God. So full of real glory, vain glory disappears. We become magnetic to the world. A few years ago, there was a couple that came into this church, and they weren't serving God, but some friends had invited them here. They convinced them to come, and so they did. They, con- they came, and they kept coming, and they both met Jesus here. They were water baptized here. They even they were, came here as highly educated skeptics, but now they're married. They've got a child together, and back when I helped them with their premarital counseling, the man looked at me, and he said this. He said, you know, there's just something about this place about this church. When we come here, we feel absolutely accepted just as we are and totally compelled to change. I thought, that's it. That's the gospel right there. Totally accepted and loved just as they are, but totally compelled to change. And we should put that up on the sign outside sometime, I think, on the billboard. Listen, I want that for us over and over. And we can have that if we'll look at the Spirit, keep in step with what the Spirit wants. Jesus' love and love for others. Can we pray this morning as you say amen? Amen. Lord, give us grace to be this, to do this, to live like this.